1: Almost anything is beautiful if you see, wow, this has implications on how the universe works, which is, you know, the, from the day we were sentient, we're like, how does this thing work? This puzzle that we have found ourselves uh, born into. And every topic is answering that question in some way, shape, or form.
0: That's Sal Khan. He's the founder of Khan Academy, the online education nonprofit. I speak with him about the state of learning in America, what technology can and can't do in education and disappointing our South Asian parents by not becoming doctors. That's coming up. Stay tuned. What is justice? How is it served? Who wields it? How is it accomplished? And when does it fail? These are some of the questions and moral quandaries that I wrestle with in my new book, Doing Justice... A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. It came out just two weeks ago, and to the great relief of my mom and dad, it debuted at number four on the New York Times bestseller list. That's kind of uh, unexpected and feels pretty good. Thank you to all who have shown your support. Doing Justice is about the stories and timeless principles that can help us understand this moment in history. I hope you'll order your copy, also available as an audiobook, at doingjusticebook.com. Now let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Natasha. I'm a grad student in Pennsylvania. And um, one of my questions is, previously, you've talked about the respect that you have for Rob Rosenstein. I'm just a little bit confused about the role that Rosenstein played in having any input into what Barr wrote, because in his summary i think that he referenced that both he and rosenstein had kind of come to these conclusions so kind of that division of who's actually uh responsible and what what role uh, rod rosenstein played in that i would like a little bit of clarification on because so far it seems like the focus has mostly been on bar and there hasn't really been much discussion about that thanks looking forward to hearing from you and um i'll listen for this on the podcast all right bye hey natasha thanks for your question So Rod Rosenstein is sort of an interesting figure in all of this, and I think will be an interesting figure when the postmortems on all this are done. As people may know, I know him. Uh, We work together as United States attorneys. He in Baltimore, I in the Southern District of New York. So let me say at the outset, you know, he's a smart, disciplined, thoughtful, capable lawyer. I think the legacy of his involvement in all of the business of the last two years is a little bit mixed. Remember, it was Rod Rosenstein who wrote that memo at the request of the president, Setting forth reasons why Jim Comey could be fired, none of which were the reasons why Donald Trump actually fired Jim Comey. Anybody who thinks that is living on a different planet. The idea that Donald Trump fired Jim Comey because he didn't treat Hillary Clinton well or color within the lines ethically with respect to Hillary Clinton is, as I've said, living on a planet, maybe not a planet even in the solar system. So, you know, Rod Rosenstein allowed himself, best case scenario, to be used in that instance. But then, after eight or nine days of blowback in which he was vilified, and I think fairly legitimately so, he appointed Bob Mueller. And he's the only reason we have Bob Mueller. And whether you think that's right or wrong, that was a pretty important statement and a pretty important development. And then throughout the pendency of the Mueller investigation, it was Rod Rosenstein who stood by it, defended it, said it wasn't a witch hunt. Uh, But that leads to an interesting conundrum. on the question of his role in doing the summary of the Mueller report and in Being involved in the assessment of whether or not obstruction was committed and the description of obstruction and making the decision along with the Attorney General to say there was no obstruction, having reviewed the Mueller report, which did not make such a conclusion. Remember, the Mueller report is sort of agnostic on it, It says we can't say that a crime was committed, we can't say that a crime was not committed, the president is not exonerated. All of that is odd because Rod Rosenstein, from what it looks like from the outside, was a little bit of a witness on the obstruction matter. He's the one who observed things that the president did. He had apparently conversations with the president. And all throughout the pendency of the investigation, it seemed odd to me that he's a person who has a potential conflict of interest and might have needed to recuse himself. That never happened in part, and maybe it's legitimate, but I just don't know. But that didn't happen in part because no Democrats ever clamored for it. Nobody ever said Rod Rosenstein doesn't belong involved in the investigation or overseeing it because he is a material witness in some way to the obstruction. And the reason for that, and that's also understandable, is that Democrats in Congress, and you know I've talked to folks who have said this, felt that Rod Rosenstein, for all intents and purposes, was one of the good defenders of the Mueller investigation and remember, people were always worried that Rod Rosenstein was going to be fired, and he was on the wrong side of Donald Trump. There was a moment when he was summoned to the White House, and everyone breathlessly reported that he was about to be canned because of his defense of the Mueller investigation, and the President was mad at him about that, so people looked at him as a defender of that investigation, so didn't raise questions about conflict, didn't raise questions about, you know, potentially his needing to recuse himself. So now we are in a position where people are not happy with the result. People think that Bill Barr inserted himself, I'm one of those people, to basically say there was no obstruction here, along with Rod Rosenstein. It made clear in the letter that they did that together. And it's a little hard, I will say, for Democrats in the House and the Senate to complain about Rod Rosenstein's involvement Because all along, for decent reasons, they said, well, Rod Rosenstein is a defender of the investigation. So I think that's sort of interesting. And the other interesting question is, why is Rod Rosenstein still there, given that we had all this reporting that he was leaving? That's happened multiple times. Maybe he's there to help with the redactions. Maybe he's there to help deal with the litigation that may arise over the subpoena that the House Judiciary Committee just voted on to obtain the Mueller report in its entirety and testimony from some other people who were under scrutiny by Bob Mueller. That all remains to be seen. I think you're right to be asking questions about Rod Rosenstein, his role, his views. Remember, there was the other interesting thing about Rod that was reported that he denied publicly, and that is in the crazy days after Jim Comey was fired, just before Bob Mueller was appointed, the reports are that Rod Rosenstein himself at a meeting, more than one meeting, invoked the 25th Amendment and raised the prospect of wearing a wire against the president. Now, It's been suggested by some people that that was a joke. I tend to think that's not a joke. And people were really freaked out in those few days, not knowing what the president was capable of, not just because he fired Jim Comey, but also because he said truly nutty things to uh, Russian officials in the White House, including that, you know, Jim Comey was a nut job and firing Comey gave him breathing room. It was a bit of chaos in the minds of a lot of people, including the minds of people who were handpicked appointees of the president himself, so I look forward to getting a full accounting, not just of the report, but also the roles of various people and the thoughts they had over time. When those books are written, I will read them. And if you don't have time to read them, I will summarize them for you. priest, this is Mike in Virginia. And you might have covered this and I missed it, but why can't Congress uh, merely invite Robert Mueller up to the Hill to ask him questions to get better clarification about what's in the report. Thanks. Look forward to your answer. Bye-bye. Hey, Mike, thanks for your question. So I certainly expect the Congress will invite Bob Mueller to testify, and I guess there are two categories of issue. Uh, one category legal, the other category pragmatic, strategic. So on the legal issue, you know, Bob Mueller is subject to the same regulations that any other person, U.S. attorney or Department of Justice official would be depending on whether or not there are assertions of executive privilege, he would be subjected to them. The White House could intervene in some way and and suggest that the scope of what he can talk about is narrowed. Bob Mueller also is an institutionalist, and to the extent there is information that he's asked about that calls for an answer that, that includes classified information or sensitive information about ongoing investigations, Bob Mueller will likely, unless there's some other authorization or compelling need, probably not reveal those things either. I've seen Bob Mueller testify. I think he's actually a model of what congressional testimony should be like. I saw him testify a number of times when I worked in the Senate. And he's not afraid of answering questions, but he's also not afraid to say, I can't answer it because it's not appropriate for me to do so. So, you know, to the extent there's a gap between what Bill Barr allows to be revealed and what is appropriate to be revealed, I don't think Bob Mueller would fear going into that gap. But he's also not a person who's ostentatious and goes out of his way and says, I would love to come testify and tell you all the stories and and be some kind of, you know, open book about what he did, but he will answer questions forthrightly if he's called to testify. Now, the pragmatic and practical issue is when do you have that happen? As I've said, the House Judiciary Committee voted to approve subpoenas for a number of individuals and also the Mueller report in its entirety today, Wednesday, April 3rd. They did not subpoena Bob Mueller, and I think that, you know, makes logical sense because I think first you want to know what you're going to get from the Mueller report so you can put intelligent, pointed questions to Bob Mueller. Also, there may be a fight about what the scope of his testimony may be, as I said in the first part. What we do know is, if you believe the representation of the Attorney General, Bill Barr, is that some version of a report is coming in a couple of weeks, it would take longer than that to have Bob Mueller come before the committee. So it seems to make sense to see, like, let's see what the report says. Let's see how many gaps there are. Let's see how many redactions there are. And then we will have a better idea and sense, having talked to some other witnesses and seeing some version of a report, what it makes sense to query Bob Mueller on. Hi, Bree, It's Ryan from Ohio. I was wondering, what's going on with all this security clearance nonsense? Thanks so much. Bye. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for your question. It, it, it sounds like you said, very basically, what the hell is going on with the security clearance nonsense, which is a question that I have, too. It's a question that a lot of people have. It's a question that Elijah Cummings, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, has as well, and I think we will be investigating. So what you're referring to is obviously the emerging scandal. I think scandal is not too strong a word in which it has become known through a whistleblower and other information that at least 25, I think, to 27 individuals in the White House, including Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, were granted high-level security clearances over the objection of the career people in the national security apparatus at the White House who determine these things. And by the way, also, it seems, over the objection laid out for posterity of the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, and the former White House chief of staff, John Kelly, that's not a small thing. You know security clearances are a big deal. They're important. they're done in a nonpartisan way. And the idea that the president is overruling all sorts of career folks and also appointees of his like the chief of staff and the White House Counsel, to me and I think to a lot of people shows a lack of respect for care and, and proper process in the national security area. These are not things to be handed out on a whim. These are not things that are be, to be handed out like favors to family members. Uh, there's a reason why you have a process. There's a reason why concerns are raised. There's a reason why objections were made and they need to be respected. And I think the whole thing needs to be looked at. And some people will undoubtedly respond, well, the president has the absolute authority to do these things, and we've been down this road before. The president has the absolute authority to nuke Canada. I'm not comparing this to nuking Canada, but the fact that the president has the authority to do something doesn't end the inquiry. In some ways, especially when you have a a revitalized Congress with oversight authority, it sometimes begins the question. It is especially galling in light of how the president operates in other areas. It's sort of like anyone who does anything good, they get rewarded in an unethical way. And if someone does something that he doesn't like or criticizes him in some way, he finds some weapon or tool to use as a cudgel against them, to punish them. That's true in the media. If he likes you and he likes your reporting, he will inappropriately tout your show or tout your network or tout your book on Twitter no one else in government is allowed to do that. It's an ethical violation. C.E.G. Walter Schaub. If he doesn't like what you're saying, he threatens to take your White House pass away. And it doesn't matter necessarily what network you're with. It's if he likes you, you get a benefit. If he doesn't like you, he tries to punish you. And the same is true, it seems, with security clearances. You'll remember that in the context of, as we're learning, overruling all these career people and giving security clearances to people who seem not to deserve them, he has, on the other hand, on multiple occasions wanted to withdraw the security clearances of people who happen to be his political rivals, like John Brennan. That's bad enough on its own, but against the backdrop of him overruling all sorts of people who have a better idea of these things than he does, I think it's obnoxious, and I think it's repugnant, and I think it's a problem, and I think it should be investigated. And I've heard you know, some talk on the part of some Republicans of taking away Adam Schiff's security clearance. It's ludicrous. You know, national security clearances are serious things, I had to go through multiple processes, both as an assistant U.S. attorney, as a staffer in the Senate, and of course, as United States attorney, to qualify for those things. Security clearances are not perks to be distributed, you know, at holiday time (laughs) to the people who you like, and to be taken away from people who you think could behave badly. This last question comes in a tweet from Eric Snyder, at eSnyder underscore one, who asks at Preet Bharara, (laughs) you are outwardly sanguine. How are you inwardly? Sanguine? Cautious, skeptical, concerned, upset, frantic, panicked, apoplectic? Hashtag Aspreet. Eric, thank you for your question. Inside, I am a caged, feral animal, and I could explode at any moment. I'm kidding, Eric. I'm just cooling the gang. My guest this week is Sal Khan. He's the founder of the education nonprofit, Khan Academy. He started out teaching one cousin over the phone, and now the videos on his site have been viewed more than 1.6 billion times. I speak with him about the inequities of the American education system, whether there's an attention crisis, and why we still study trigonometry. Sometimes, just unlocking the mysteries of the world is its own goal. That's coming up. Stay tuned. How much time do you think attorneys spend managing their legal practices, clients, and cases? As an attorney myself, I know that the answer is a lot. Thankfully, there's a better way, with Clio. Clio is the secure, cloud-based legal software that makes managing and growing your firm easier. Clio automates the tedious tasks that take up your valuable time, like generating bills, maintaining endless documents, and keeping cases organized. Clio allows you to focus on the things that actually matter, Clio's easy-to-use interface makes you more productive and helps you get paid faster. And Clio's mobile app lets you access your files from wherever you are. Clio is trusted by over 150,000 legal professionals and approved by 66 bar associations and law societies worldwide. I even spoke at Clio's cloud conference a few years back. So take your law firm to the next level with Clio. Go to clio.com Preet to start your free trial, no credit card required, and get a special offer. That's Clio.com slash Preet. C-L-I-O dot com slash Preet. Sal Khan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Preet. Right off the bat, let me just ask you this. How disappointed were your South Asian parents that you did not become a doctor? <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually a, a bit of a sore point.
1: My mom still... still we, we made a couple of <laughs> medical videos, and actually we had partnered with Stanford Medical School to do them, I'm 43 now. This was—I was probably. You know, this is when Khan Academy had already become a real thing. I, I must have been about 36, 37. When my mom found out about those videos, she literally asked me whether I could now get a little credit for med school and maybe finish <laughs> faster. Did you I'm
0: make? I'm not those, joking. Did you make? Oh, I know. When we talk about our parents, we're never joking. Did you do that in part to appease them?
1: In part. Maybe, but it clearly did nothing. It just it just amplified the, the disappointment. How would you how you pick the
0: name? It's so interesting. The name Khan Academy. How did you how did you come up with that?
1: <laughs> you know, hey, I, I'm actually quite sensitive about that because I actually Are used you? to make fun of. I, I used to make fun of people who would name things after themselves. I thought it was a very you know narcissistic thing to do, but in the early days of Khan Academy before it was even called Khan Academy, when I was working with family members, I, I was writing software for them and I wanted to call it something. This was before I'd even made YouTube videos. And a lot of uh, domain names were already taken up and the one thing that was available was, was Khan Academy. And the reason why I picked Academy, it was almost a joke, it was me and my family members, uh, my last name and then my the Academy, I, I thought it would be nice if it all had an, an air of being something that could turn into an institution and that's something that eventually I I do want it to turn into another dimension of it even when we incorporated it as a nonprofit that actually was a reason in a pseudo strategic way why I also wanted con there because in a in a not for profit I don't own any shares there's no formal uh, lever of control but I thought hey you know at least if my name's on it they would only fire me in an extreme circumstance right they'd have so to they would have to
0: find bad. another con or they would have to change the name that gets yeah. complicated. Although, you know, but Khan Academy, you know, it sounds cool and it works. If your if your name if I had done this, I'm not sure Barrara Academy would have worked. It's too many syllables. I think it's got a ring to it. But if you had a if you had a podcast, you might call it Stay Tuned with Preet. So I, I put my name in it also. So I so I also can't be fired. No judgment. No judgment. So you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with the amazing story of how Khan Academy started. So you disappointed your parents by not going to medical school maybe made them feel a little bit better by going to a hedge fund. And you're a hedge fund guy. And explain what happened.
1: Yeah, my my real training and background was in tech. Uh, you know, I was a CS guy, a computer science guy, an early part of my career. Uh, you know, when the dot-com bubble popped in the late 90s, I went to business school. And then coming out of business school, I... I had ironically sworn off entrepreneurship because uh, I thought I didn't have the stomach for it. And I said, let me do something you know, that that's less economically sensitive, <laughs> and so I, I had the bright idea of joining a very small uh, hedge fund. It was me and, and, and my boss. Uh, but while I was doing that, this was now uh, 2003, 2004, I had just gotten married. A family member, Nadia, she was 12 years old, had come up from New Orleans, which is where I was born and raised, uh, to Boston for my wedding. And it just came out of conversation. She was having trouble in math. Uh, I offered to tutor her when she got back to New Orleans. She agreed, so I would just get on the phone with her. You know, long story short, she at first she just was convinced she wasn't capable of learning math. She had trouble with unit conversion. Then, slowly but surely on the phone, I, I kind of deprogrammed her lack of self-confidence. Then she started to learn the math. She actually got caught up with her class a little ahead of the class. And because of her perceived weakness, she had actually done quite badly on a standardized exam the previous year. And they had put her into a remedial math class. So once I saw that she had caught up and that she was ahead, I called up her school. I said you know, I became something of a tiger cousin. And I called up her school, and I said, "You know, I really think Nadia Rahman should be able to retake that placement test from last year." They said, "Who are you i'm I'm her cousin <laughs> and they they somewhat uh surprisingly let her take it, and that same Nadia, who was in a remedial math class literally a few months before was now being placed into an advanced math class. so I was hooked. It was a fun way for me to bond with a cousin, a family member who was about maybe fifteen years younger than me at the time. Uh, then I started working with her younger brothers and over the next two years uh, I had moved out to California with our firm and uh, uh, word got around the family that free tutoring is going on and <laughs> I, I found myself it's a bargain. It's a bar it's a good price yes I had a money back guarantee. Uh, I had about 10 15 cousins family friends that I was tutoring every day after my after the markets closed. My wife at the time was a medical resident, so I had we didn't have kids at that point. Uh, so that's what I would do. And the early Khan Academy had nothing to do with videos. It was actually I saw common patterns in my family members that the reason why they were struggling in an, say an algebra class it had nothing to do with their innate intelligence, nothing to do with their with algebra. It was because they had accumulated gaps from fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade, and so I started writing software just for kicks, that would help them practice some of those gaps so that they can really get that fluency, that proficiency, so that the algebra or whatever else uh, didn't really take as much cognitive load. They didn't have to take, think about how do I divide decimals? How do I uh, evaluate a negative exponent? And I saw that that was really helping helping my family. And I used to show this off to uh, all my friends at dinner parties and things, and I was actually at a dinner party. This was in November 2006, and the host, his name is Zulfiqar Ramzan, I have to give him full credit, he said, well, this is all cool, Sal, but how are you actually scaling up your lessons? And I said, I'm I'm not. Uh, it's hard to do with 15 cousins and family friends that I was able to do just with Nadia and her brothers. And and he said, well, you know, why why don't you uh, record your lessons as videos and upload them onto YouTube for your family? And I immediately thought it was a, a horrible idea. I thought, you know, <laughs> YouTube's for cats playing piano, not not for serious mathematics. But uh, I, I went home, got over the idea that it wasn't my idea and and, and gave it a shot. And uh, you know, my, my family famously gave me feedback that they liked me better on YouTube than in person. Um, I I think- How did uh, how'd,
0: how'd that make you feel?
1: <laughs> I reflected on it. And when I reflected, it actually made a lot of sense. I don't think <laughs> they were saying, they weren't saying that they don't appreciate me. I don't think they were saying, in fact, they, they did say they appreciate me, the interest that I was taking in them, et cetera, being a mentor. But what they were saying is, and I think we've all been there. The first time you're trying to learn something that you might find a little bit intimidating, a little bit stressful, it's actually sometimes stressful when there's a well-wisher, a, a cousin, a family friend, a tutor who's sitting next to you saying, hey, it makes sense, right? A leads to B, leads to C. And you feel pressure Say, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then five hours later, you're trying to do it on your own and you're like, what did my cousin tell me? What did my tutor tell me? I, I forgot the steps. Or it might be you're embarrassed. Uh, you're a, a 14-year-old and and you're a little shaky on your fifth grade math. You you might be embarrassed telling your cousin or your tutor or your teacher that. Uh, but with these videos, there's no judgment. They're available to you whenever you need. You don't feel like you're wasting someone's time. If you ask for it to to repeat itself, you can get as many repeats as you want. Right. Uh, so I think that's what they were saying.
0: Can I ask you a question just about this, the, the effectiveness of um, just video in general? And it seems to me there's there's one principle of teaching and learning, that it's interactive. And if you don't understand something in a classroom or in another environment, You can ask a question and the teacher can alter from his or her, you know, original lesson plan and spend some time. But if you have a video that's static and doesn't change and you can't be interactive, how do you make sure that that is as effective as it can be?
1: So I think there's there's different layers to it. I'm a big believer that interactivity is key uh, in the learning process. That's why most of Khan Academy, even the early days, you know, the story I just told you, I had started on the practice platform. That was the original Khan Academy that through the practice and the immediate feedback, my cousins would learn better, that they could keep course correcting. Uh, the videos were really a supplement to that. And even today, most of our resources at Khan Academy are, are on the practice side of things, kind of in a, and I'm happy to you know kind of a mastery learning. Uh, kids can learn at their own pace and fill in their gaps. But even the videos It's funny, even when Zuli suggested it, I kind of had the same mindset. Well, you know, I guess if if someone's struggling with the practice, this might be a nice little explanation for them. I think the key is, is how someone's mind is primed going into a video or a lecture. I think if you're in a traditional lecture-based classroom, it's just kind of fed to you, regardless of where you are. I think we've all experienced it. We've sat in lectures and we've zoned out or we're like, hey, I'm lost or I'm bored or it's hard to, to really pay attention, especially when it's a 60-minute lecture or in college a 90-minute lecture. What's been interesting, and I really just fell into it, I remember that first video that I made on YouTube, I think it was a 15-minute video, and then YouTube rejected me because there was a limit at the time that it could only be a 10-minute video. So I was like, okay, I guess I have to explain all of algebra in 10-minute segments. And yeah, so, piece, of, piece of cake. Piece of cake. But I realized, well, you know, there's no, they didn't say I couldn't upload 100 videos, they just said they had to be less than 10 minutes each. And I think there was something very powerful about that. And I realized that actually the the key nuggets of knowledge you could do in this kind of three to 10 minute range and then just keep sequencing them and there's something about that where the act of watching a video, it isn't like I'm going into the big lecture hall on my university and whatever the professor's gonna say, I'm just gonna take notes regardless of how interested I am in. A video, it's almost the act of clicking on is it. like you know you have a question about that concept, so your mind is already primed. So I actually do think it's more analogous to asking a question about, hey, I'm still a little bit shaky on what happens in a case where two lines don't intersect. How do I solve that system of equations? Well, look, there's a video on exactly that question. And so I could click on that. So I think it's a little bit more of an active process. And then, of course, you can pause, repeat. You could watch it on double speed. You could watch it on half speed. Uh, There's comment section where people can answer their questions below it. So I won't claim that it can do all of what an interactive classroom can be. In fact, if anything, we view everything we do at Khan Academy as something that could hopefully enable a classroom to be co- do higher order tasks. We don't view it as somehow a replacement for a classroom. Uh, but we think it, it can it can do a lot of the uh, active, interactive type of, of learning as well.
0: Is there a sort of set of principles that applies to teaching all subjects, or is it a very different matter to try to teach concepts of math algebra for example as you mentioned versus history versus science versus something else
1: I'm of of the school of thought there are some core principles that would apply to almost everything uh you know the ones that i try to remind myself is you know number 1 if if the person who is Creating the content. And I think this is true of videos, but it's also even true if you're writing questions, if you're creating a software experience, but especially if you're doing videos or if you're giving a lecture, if you're not excited, if you're not genuinely excited about what you're about to talk about, no one else is going to be genuinely excited yeah. about it. H- human beings are very, very sensitive to tone. Bueller. And it's. Bueller. <laughs> exactly. <Right. laughs> well, that's the first one. You have to be excited. And then I think the second one is you have to be, if you are stressed about it, that stress will also convey. So, I have a lot of friends actually in the early days that I tried to be guest lecturers on Khan Academy, and when I would talk to them about their area of expertise, whether it was physics or chemistry or history, they are these passionate people. They're you know they're doing a PhD in the field, they're writing about it. But as soon as you turn on a, a recording device or as soon as you put them in front of an audience, <laughs> right. they kind of turned into that. They, they they were so self-conscious about making a mistake that their passion didn't come through. They they wanted to plan everything, but they were also planning away their passion. So I think that's that's the the second element that's really important, you know. So the first one is you you've got to really care and be passionate. The second one is uh, don't overthink it and plan out your passion and and your your personality. Be willing to let that show. Be a little bit quirky, a little bit every now and then. Um, I would say the third is is make sure that folks have are able to see how this fits into the universe. Almost anything is beautiful if you see, wow, this has implications on how the universe works, which is, you know, the, from the day we were sentient, we're like, how does this thing work? This puzzle that we have found ourselves uh, born into. And every topic is answering that question in some way, shape, or form. It's either trying to understand this mystery of, like, what are we? You know, that's the humanities. Or, like, what is this universe, this simulation, whatever you want to call it that we've fallen into, that's that's what the sciences and and philosophy and, and spirituality are trying to, to Address so the more you can draw those those connections the better so I th- I think those are pretty true in almost any field
0: well, that's interesting because you know one of the complaints that that kids have in school is how is this going to help me later trigonometry what's the purpose of this but I guess your point is that in in every context making it clear why this is important even if you're not going to become a mathematician someday or even if you're not going to become an astronomer to understand how you know things work in the cosmos will cause people to be more interested in what is being said. Is that is that something you think is lacking generally in education? Y-
1: yes, uh, although I, I have a, a slight contrarian view, which is there's a mainstream view that, okay, if if a subject matter is kind of just delivered, people say, well, how is this going to matter in my later life? How is this going to matter for my economic well-being or getting a job? And I think there is a dimension of that. If you can say, hey, if you learn this, you if you're interested in going into finance or, or computers, this, this is how you know bankers use this idea this is how people in in software use this idea but i actually think a even more powerful notion is for pe- to expose the beauty of the ideas i think you know i could tell you hey this idea a is interesting because it might help you make money in 20 years yeah that's kind of or i could say do you realize what idea a tells you about the universe doesn't that give you chills <laughs> like doesn't you and and i think there's a lot in mathematics and actually in any subject, in, in science where you're just like, oh my God, I did not realize that about the universe. When you're studying mathematics, it's almost, you are just scratching the surface about something, you know, kind of like, almost like a spiritual order of the universe that our, our human brains are only just starting to, to glimpse. <laughs> what could be more exciting than that?
0: <laughs> do, you, do you think that um that people's attention spans and especially children's attention spans have gotten less and it makes teaching harder? Or is it your view, which I like, that so long as the teacher has passion and um, relates it to why it's important in the world, that that even the modern generation in which my kids are, that sees you know fast editing on videos and play and they play video games and everything is is quick 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 and short, has that been a problem? The attention span waning, or is that a myth?
1: I'm not a hundred percent sure. My gut sense is, for the most part intention spans are probably, uh, they, they might have gotten a little bit more scattered uh, because of all of the, you know, you jump on your phone and you're doing five different things and your brain is constantly saying, do I have another email? you know Let me check social media, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that can have a, a harmful effect. And, and I think before we started, I was talking about how I started meditating and it's almost the exact opposite of that. So it does get you a little bit more in the flow and, and focused. But I think the biggest factor isn't that, I think human beings, you know, there's studies from well before social media and cell phones became a thing. Uh, This go back to the 70s and 80s, some of these studies I wrote about in my book, is that when they studied students in a class, they're able to focus the first 10 or 15 minutes, then they zone out for about four, five minutes, then they zone in, but now when they zone in, they, can, they can't zone in 15 minutes. Now they might zone in 12 minutes or, or, or shorter. And then they zone out for a little bit longer. So that's actually a very natural phenomenon that you can really keep your focus for about 15 minutes, then you zone out. It's a very natural thing for the human brain to do. The reason why classes are 60 minutes or 90 minutes, despite some of that research, is just logistics. They're like, hey, we're taking all the trouble of scheduling people into a room they have to switch classes they have to move their bodies they have to get their books out so let's keep them there as long as they can without needing a bathroom break i I literally think that might be the the, the design principle by by which it was made so so i think all of us you know if we go back when we were in school in in the 80s and 90s we all zoned out after after 10 minutes after 15 minutes and we didn't have social media we didn't have these other distractions I, i think the difference now is kids today you could almost say have, they know what it's like to get something in a 10-minute dosage and they're like, hey, that's actually a lot more, even learning is, is a lot more appealing in, in that dosage. And so when they go back to the 90-minute form factor or the and, it, and if it's just passive and you have to sit there, uh, when you know something that's a little bit easier to digest, you're, you're going to have trouble taking the thing that is uh, you know a little bit boring and passive. That's not to say that the class isn't incredibly valuable. All the teachers that I talk to love this is that, look, now it doesn't have to be about passive Information delivery when human beings get together, it should be about what can the human beings do together. Uh, how do they teach each other? How do they can they have a, a Socratic dialogue? Can they do a project? Can they do a simulation?
0: You have a very optimistic view, which I like, and I hope is correct. But I want you to talk about it for a second. You say that um, that everyone really innately wants to learn. Virtually everyone, um, and it's not the case that we sometimes think, well, some people are not interested in learning. That often it's the failure of the teacher or the failure of the school or a failure of the institution or some other failure that doesn't tap into what I think you believe is an innate desire to learn and of curiosity.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I always point out is you, you give me a group of three and four-year-olds. I don't care about their parents' education level, their income level, their race, their gender, or where they grew up. They are the same. Like If you bring a any new object into the room, any three or four-year-old, you literally have to fight them off. They want to explore it. You know, No matter how mundane it, it could be like a a pink piece of, of plastic. They're going to go it. They're going to do all sorts. So that is a very core thing that makes us human. I, I think, unfortunately, what, what happens is many times, you know, once you go into a traditional system, and this is a system that kind of came out of the Industrial Revolution, a Victorian era where self-control was kind of, kind of the highest thing over even things like curiosity and and creativity. Yeah, a lot of that look straight, put your finger on your lips and uh, listen to what what we got to say. If you want to move, this is that too bad. Uh, you have to learn to control yourself. I think it gets worse uh, for kids who might not have extra supports because they might get into a system where it's a fixed pay system. You know, you are my children. We we are able to give them all of the all all of the benefits of of a great preschool, all the benefits of tutoring them, and 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 you know all sorts of enrichment activities. And if there's a group of kids who get that, and then a group of kids who aren't getting the preschool, who aren't getting the enrichment activities as early as kindergarten it starts to hit their self-esteem it starts to hit how the teachers perceive them and once again tone human beings are very sensitive to it and i think over time uh, that has a a very big effect you know a thought experiment i like to give people is if you go back in time 400 years to western europe you would have seen, which even then was one of the more literate parts of the planet, you would see about 15% of the population was literate, about 20% of men and and 10% of women. And I suspect that if you went to someone who knew how to read, say a member of clergy, and said, what percentage of the population do you think is even capable of reading? They probably would have said, well, with a great education system, maybe 30%. Uh, and, and that would have been reasonable given that his context of of well th- that's optimistic in a world where only 15% can read today and they probably would have said that yeah, probably most of the population isn't capable of reading uh, but we did have mass public education that came out of the industrial revolution, which was a huge boon to society. And we now know that pretty close to one hundred percent of the population is is capable of reading. But if if we you know if we go out to even fairly optimistic people, and I would ask you know what percentage of the population is capable of of being a member of the the creative class, for lack of a better word, you know people who could be researchers, find the cure for cancer, uh, be an entrepreneur, write the next great novel. I think a lot of folks would say, well, right now that's you know, give or take, uh, maybe five percent uh, of the population with a great education system. Maybe it can be uh, ten or fifteen. But I, I think that's based on similar blinders that that clergy member would have had four hundred years ago. Where today people say, well. I've seen a lot of my peers drop off the pipeline, so to speak, in that algebra class or that geometry class or that physics class, even though they, but what I believe is that, well, they dropped off because they had a gap in dividing decimals, which any human being can understand. They just need the time to really fill in that gap. And then the algebra would make all the sense in the world. And then they could keep going. And then the calculus would make all the sense in the world. I'm saying this and not as like, oh yeah, calculus was easy for me type of tone. When I really think about calculus, if you really go into calculus or physics or quantum, if you go into these with a really, really strong background, they really aren't any more difficult than learning anything that came before it. It's just that people go into them with a lot of gaps in their foundation, which makes them really hard to tread. So I I think... If we allow people to learn at their own time and pace, master these concepts, I theoretically had been believing that you could get a much larger chunk of of society to participate. And now at Khan Academy, almost every day we get... 10, 20 letters, comments from people all over the world saying, you know, I, I dropped out of high school. I thought I was no good. I reengaged. Now I want to be an engineer because I realize how beautiful math is uh, or physics or chemistry or, 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 or world history. Uh, and we're seeing that from a lot of folks that you wouldn't expect. I've gotten, in the last two weeks, I've gotten two handwritten letters from prisoners in the in the Florida correctional facilities saying how uh, there's they've been able to get Khan Academy usage offline how Khan Academy has kind of awakened their curiosity I would argue awakened it again Reading their words, I realize that you know th- these people are more excited about learning and the beauty of mathematics than even many people who are sitting in colleges or, or grad schools. So it's really just about filling in those gaps. And if these people, the most marginalized in society, can get excited, I'm pretty confident that it's like literacy that pretty close to 100% could participate at that level.
0: You're absolutely right, and it applies in multiple contexts. That whether it's in a job setting or in school, you do a task or you try a project, and you don't do a great job and a view gets developed of you and then you internalize it and it becomes very hard to recover. I mean, we used to talk about that in a rarefied place like the U.S. Attorney's Office that opinions about, you know, rookie prosecutors were formed sometimes very early because they, you know, somebody made some mistake on a case or didn't handle some oral argument particularly well and that could have a crushing, even on these people who have amazing resumes and are amazingly talented because they didn't have the room to have that, you know, sort of setback And everyone around them thought they were capable of only so much. And you have to work really hard on making sure that you're encouraging people in the right way. And so that leads me to my my next question. You wrote something interesting once. It made me think about my own family. The question of how we encourage people and how we incentivize them and the ways in which we talk to them. And you once wrote, you don't tell your son that he's smart. And I realized, well, I, you know, I I tell my kids they're smart all the time. Explain why that is and what you do say. Right.
1: and I will uh, say a disclaimer. The title of that that opinion piece that I had written it was a little bit clickbaity. I hadn't didn't yeah. write the title. I kind of <laughs> cringed when you know it, it kind of. I didn't write that, but uh, whoever did it, actually a lot of people did click on it and and forward it around. But it it wasn't completely not true uh, or disingenuous of a title, even though I didn't write it, uh, because the the article was. You know, my son was four at the time. He's he's now he was four or five. That he's now ten years old. But he was just learning to read. And I remember um, at the time for Khan Academy, we were engaging a lot with some of the, the leaders in, in the mindset research, Carol Dweck being most famous, she, you know, she's done a lot of work on growth mindset. And, you know, the whole principle they talk about is people either have a fixed or a growth mindset. People with a fixed mindset say, hey, I, I'm either smart in a certain area or I'm not. I either have the gene for it or I'm not. While people with a growth mindset think, well... I really don't know my potential unless I willingly put myself out of my comfort zone. I'm willing to fail and recognize that failure isn't a reason to quit. Failure is a reason to reflect. And that's actually where, where when, when my brain will, will grow the most. And there's a bunch of research. They had designed interventions where, you know, if you point out to a child that when you fail, that's when your neurons are growing the most, that your brain is like the muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Um, if you praise, and this goes to the title of that article, if you praise process over outcome uh, it's far better so uh, I I was trying that with my son uh, before I had written that article where he was learning to read and when he was t- having trouble with the word or or when he eventually was able to, to read something I I based on Carol Dweck and other people's advice I said instead of telling him hey good job you're really smart or you're really good at this. Um, and I think it's you know the good job is fine. I said, hey, I re I really like the way that you struggled with that and powered through and got to a place. I'm really impressed with your your perseverance. I'm really impressed with your grit. Uh, so that I was praising his process, uh, not whether he you know got to an outcome faster or, or slower than expected.
0: Do you think we pay too much attention in that way uh, to talent? There's this thing that people say, you have or don't have, whether it's at you know throwing a ball or you know, hitting hitting a, a ball with a tennis racket or, or some other sport or writing or anything else that just generally overall we emphasize, you know, something like innate talent over effort?
1: I think to some degree. I, I'm not going to be in denial that there is always a, a let's call it a genetic component. Um, I don't think anyone in my family is going to be joining the NBA anytime soon. No matter, you know, that sounds, that sounds negative, but I, I could, pray, I could praise the process a lot, but there's just some realities about, you know, my, my reflexes and and uh, the expected height of my children that that will uh, probably. Uh, but I will say that people in, in my family could probably get a lot better at basketball uh, than most people would expect. So so it's a um, if, if we are willing to push ourselves out of our comfort zone and, you know, maybe in my extended family, maybe if someone maybe someone could join the NBA. So it's it's a combination. But the thing is, you don't know the genetic component. It's not like it's written on us somehow. And the only way you know someone's potential is if that person is willing to step out of their comfort zone and. Try and fail and learn from those failures and have that mindset that failure is actually the fun, the the really constructive part of the adventure. And the thing is, you know, I started with the NBA example. In the NBA, you know, you're talking about only a few hundred folks in the whole planet, and that's why it's such a rarefied level. But the reality in most fields, whether it's you want to go into, Computer science, or you want to you want to be a a solid writer, you want to become an attorney. Uh, You don't have to be one of a hundred in the world. You could be one of a hundred thousand in the world and still do very very well. And I actually think uh, most people could actually get to that level if if they have a a growth
0: mindset. So a lot of this is getting me to think about an issue. As a parent, you're a parent. A lot of parents listening. What is the right role for a parent in connection with the education of their children? I grew up in a in a household that I've discussed on the on the show before you know very strict education minded indian immigrant parents who basically the most important thing in the world was how my brother and I did in school and how we did on tests and how much we had to study because that to them you know that was my dad's ticket out of india right one of 13 the only one to go to college then went to medical school and that was his that was his ticket to a better life for his family so that that was ingrained but you know, my, my parents spent a lot of time every day constantly talking about the importance of education and how well we did. And, um, you know, we have discussions now. It worked out pretty well from me and my brother. But I, I'm not sure necessarily that had they been, you know, a little less focused, that it wouldn't have been the same. I guess, So my, my question is, how, how do parents play in this, in this field of, of worrying about their kids and education? Do you have a view?
1: Yeah, and I, I'll, you know, I'll be the first to say I'm, I'm you're ahead of me on the parenting curve
0: than I, than, <laughs> than I you know, my, my kids are younger and I'm... But you're in the, sort of the field of education and, and, and you've talked to a lot of folks and you've learned from, you know, Khan Academy work, I, I presume. Um, maybe, maybe you don't have a view, but... I,
1: I... No, no, I, I have a view. I'm just giving a disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, okay. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I, I mean, you. my kids are young, and I, the last thing I want to do is jinx their future based on you know their dad sounding too uh, sure of himself when they're, when they're 10, 8, and, and, and 4 years old. Um, I actually have a, a very interesting vantage point within the South Asian community. My family came to the U.S., Actually, very similar to yours. For those who aren't familiar with U.S. immigration policy in the late 1960s, if you meet someone like you or I who was born in the U.S. who's over 40, it's a very high probability that their one of or both of their parents were, were doctors. And, right. and my dad was that because the U.S. there was a healthcare shortage, uh, a worker shortage, and they started essentially importing doctors from from India and, and Bangladesh and Pakistan. And uh, my dad sounds like your dad came in on that wave. My dad came in 1968. 1971, goes back to Bangladesh, finds my mom, uh, literally arranged, you know, sh- shows back up. But what what was interesting about my trajectory is my dad and mom divorced very early. Uh, I was two years old, uh, which is very unusual, as you know, and in, in, especially at that time in, in that community. And then I I never saw him. Uh, and and then he passed away uh, when I was 13. So, I, you know, I think he had some uh, things he was going through, but I, I never really knew him. Uh, and so I it was kind of this um, dissonance where I I was raised by a single mother and my mom did not have a big, a a significant education. You know, we, she would do whatever it took to make ends meet. I remember when I was four, I thought she had the coolest job in the world. She was the person who took the change out of the vending machine at at actually the hospital where I was born. Um, And then later she ended up working as a a cashier. And then when I was in high school, she remarried and her and my stepdad ran kind of a little convenience store and in this kind of almost like fisherman community outside of New Orleans. Um, What the dissonance was is that we also were family friends with a lot of folks that were, it sounds like closer to your family, where they were professionals and and they were doing. And what I, my observation is I had the best of, or both of where my family, my mom was just trying to make ends meet. So we really didn't have the... You know, I wasn't taking the piano lessons and going to tutoring and doing all of that type of stuff that I saw a lot of uh, my other South Asian friends doing and actually gave me a lot of time and space to maybe be bored and as a creativity is a, a side effect of boredom. But at the same time, I was able to because I, I'd had these these friends, and I'd go to these these dinner parties where you know their their parents were doctors and all of that. I, I was able to at least conceptualize in my head that maybe I could do that too. You know, between me and that that kid, I feel like I'm I could do what they're doing. But what I've seen in the Indian community, and I would observe these kind of pressure cooker environments where it's like you must go to med school, you must get straight A's, which which actually wasn't my, my upbringing. I I saw um what I would call a high variance outcome where. I would say 90% of of the kids that I grew up with, it sounds like you grew up with too, did very well, shockingly well. I mean, one of them ended up being governor of Louisiana.
0: (laughs) Oh, Bobby Jindal. He
1: he actually ended up marrying uh, one of my closest friends' older sister. So, you know, I was like, wow. (laughs) But on the other hand, I know a lot of children in that community who've actually done reasonably well, but because there's so much pressure, you know, they're going through anxiety and depression, and it can become debilitating. And so when I see, saw that, you know, the lens I try to take with my children are, yes, of course, I, I want to give them the opportunities. I want to make sure, sh- you know, and I want to make sure they have strong foundations in academics so that they never hit those walls, so that if they want to be a, a researcher, and they can. If they want to be a lawyer, they can. If they want to be a doctor, they can. But for me, the number one thing is that they have a resilience to them, that they're mindful about it, that no matter what you know, life's going to throw stuff at them. A lot of that's out of their control that when they get knocked down, that they're able to get up and that they don't they don't define themselves by other people's perceptions, which I think happens a lot in the South Asian community. <laughs> people are driven primarily by what other people think. And, and that's what leads to anxiety and depression and all that type of thing. So I, you know, I, I want them to learn the math and all that, but I also want them to be mindful. You know, I've been doing a lot more meditation. I'm trying to get my kids to do it because I feel like that's a little bit of, it builds that that resilience muscle.
0: You did an interesting thing in the last few years, sort of like um, like Amazon in the following way. Everything is online. You buy products online. Your classes have been online. And then you actually opened up a brick-and-mortar school. Why? Well...
1: We're not on the cusp of uh, either virtually or physical being anywhere like on the scale of Amazon. But actually, it's an interesting example. I, I have always said that some people view online education uh, versus physical education as a bit of an, an- analogy with uh, e-commerce and, and physical commerce. I, I don't view it that way. That you know, the same way that e-commerce, say Amazon, did disrupt Barnes and Nobles. I don't think online is is going to or should disrupt physical classrooms. In my mind, online can liberate what happens in a physical classroom. So all of our children, yes, I hope that they're able to learn on Khan Academy and they're able to learn at their own time and pace and that they're able to um, master concepts and explore things and build that agency, which actually is a meta muscle that I think something like Khan Academy helps students learn. But they need to go to a school and build and form connections and have mentors and teachers and all of that. And so I started the school really to explore what that is. In a world where information can happen at a student's own time and pace, in a world where a practice with instant feedback can happen to student's own time and pace. What could the school look like? Because it, that unlocks all sorts of things. If information delivery isn't what happens in a classroom, you don't have to group kids by age and perceived ability level. Uh, you could start team co-teaching and you can make it all about interactivity. You know, Why do we have these things called letter grades? Instead of holding fixed uh, when you learn something and have this variable outcome called letter grades, A, B, C, D, F, do it the other way around everyone should get to the a level but what's variable is when and how long you get to work on it if you're able to learn the core skills much more efficiently it should liberate much more time for creativity for entrepreneurial thinking and i view entrepreneurial thinking not just starting a business it's entrepreneurial like let me how do i solve that problem in the world it could be as an ngo it could be as a you know just creating a little bit of an invention and so that's why I wanted to start a school. Um, and, you know, there was a somewhat selfish motivation too, but I also wanted to not be a hypocrite, which is I was talking to the world about these ideas of mastery learning, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a my same son, who, who I never tell is smart, <laughs> he was about to enter <laughs> kindergarten. And I was like, well, it's, I'd be a hypocrite if I was telling the rest of the world that we should do mastery learning and move to this type of a model and, and, and all these other things. In, in my book, One World Schoolhouse, I write about why do we have summer vacation? We should be full year, full day, et cetera, et cetera. My own children should experience that. And yeah, we started that about four and a half years ago. I've learned so much from that. The theoretical ideas, actually, if anything, I feel even more bullish about it, but there is a lot about running a physical school, that it's easy for a uh, you know a, a person running a website, you know, <laughs> however large, um, to, to theorize about, but it you know, it hits home just the importance of teachers, loving human beings in a, in a child's life, uh, the importance of community. It's funny. You know, the thing that I'm most proud about of ConLab Lab school, yes, we're using technology, yes, et cetera, that. But when people go there, they're blown away by the community of the kids and the, the adults. They kind of all blend together. There isn't this strange hierarchy. There isn't that strange antagonism. They literally feel um, they're helping each other. I've seen students help teachers. I've seen teachers help students. They all feel like they're, they're in it together.
0: I can I ask you a question about tests? You know, there's a lot of tests, and there's a lot of controversy about whether schools teach too much to the test and whether or not the fact of tests causes people not to learn in the way that you want them to learn, and... There's controversy over the particular standardized tests that play a large role in college admissions. But do you have a worry about testing in this country? Do we do too much of it? Do we put too much weight on it? Are they fair? These are a lot of questions. And if you're a lawyer, you could object to compound questions. (laughs) But this is a podcast and the rules of evidence don't apply. So just talk about tests.
1: If you want to improve something, you need to be able to measure it. Inherently, that's what tests are. They're measurements. Now, I think the place where you get into a a tricky area is all measurements are imperfect, especially in something like education. Any educator will tell you that there's all sorts of intangibles that students are getting from an education, but some of those are a lot harder to measure than, do you know this vocabulary word or can you solve this problem? And so the testing, really from a practical point of view, tends to measure the stuff that's easy to test. And that can be valuable as long as it's viewed in a proper context. So for example, making it tangible, the SAT, I think the SAT is a is a fine test. The reason why a lot of colleges look at it is they do see an association between those scores and uh, how well students are, how ready they are for, for their campus. Now, with that said, they know that that is not That does not define the student. And so as as long as tests are viewed with the proper context and not viewed as the end-all and be-all, I think they can be fine.
0: Your view is not, if I understand it's not that the test is necessarily so bad, but, you know, extending your argument that maybe colleges put too much emphasis on it and don't take the time and effort to look at other data points. And, And part of the reason for that, by the way, and this is especially pronounced in law school, and schools that are selective... Put a great emphasis on the fact that they are selective, and that is how they continue to be selective. Because then, you know, high-ranking people in high schools going to college or in colleges going to law school will want to go there because they're selective. So it's a it's a self-perpetuating elitism and selectivity. And so even if it's the case that they have some understanding that a student is not properly measured by the SAT score or the or the LSAT score, they can't afford, in some ways. This is my theory at the moment. They can't afford, in some ways to take that lower scoring student, because then it screws up their quotient that they advertise to everybody. Does that make any sense? And is that a problem?
1: You know, my view on it is they do, of course, care about scores. They, they care a lot about other things, oftentimes just as much. And I, I do think law school is probably the one area where they're the, most by the numbers of GPA and scores. You know, the one thing that really excites us about this work that we've been doing on the SAT is we are seeing... A lot more underrepresented students, African American students, Latino students, reaching thresholds where they they can go to uh, selective schools. And what's exciting about that for us, it's not just about the score. They're also uh, getting stronger at their core, at their foundational skills and algebra and and trigonometry and and the reading comprehension. So when they show up on campus, they're they're that much more likely to to really succeed and be able to to you know fulfill their aspirations.
0: I don't know if you want to bite off this next question, but. Do you have a view of whether or not public education in this country uh, is, is unfair in terms of access? I mean, is it right that in most places public education is funded by property taxes? So if, you, if you're in a wealthy community, your schools have more money, and if you're not, they don't. And the property taxes are paid by everyone, whether you have children in the school system or not. How do you feel about that?
1: At a very high level... It's not fair at all. There are for sure public schools in this country that you or I would not want our send our children to. Um, and the children who go to those schools are have a very uphill battle to face. And But there could be many dimensions why that is happening. Oftentimes, you have some of the most passionate teachers in, in some of those schools, but there's not the resources. And so that goes to kind of the resourcing question around, say, the property taxes. I'm not an expert there, but some of the stats that I do know, a majority... Of minority majority schools, I know that's a mouthful, don't, high schools do not offer calculus, do not offer physics, do not offer AP American history. And so it's not as obvious, but it's happening all the way back to kindergarten and pre K, where a lot of these kids aren't even able to go to a pre K because for some arbitrary reason, our public school system starts at five, even though a lot of research says that. It really should start at two or three, or in fact, it should even start maybe from birth, uh, so that especially in, in, when when both parents are working, or if there's a single mom and she's working, what do you do with this kid? You know, I, you know, and my, when my mom had to be the person who's emptying the vending machines at the hospital, we were with our uncles, and you know, over the summer. But a lot of people don't don't have those types of supports. Um, so, a simple answer is, yeah, it is it is unequal. It's not something that you can just snap your fingers and and solve. It's very complex. What we hope to do from a Khan Academy point of view is at least help aspects of that. If you don't, if your school, and it's actually not just urban areas, uh, the rural poor, not or even the rural middle class actually sometimes doesn't have access. There's not a, you're on a farm and there's not a, an algebra class within 20 miles of where you are, or at that one, one, one room schoolhouse that you go to, uh, or something that's akin to it, uh, you know, there's the person who, who's, you know, there might be one teacher who's teaching five different courses, some of which they might be more expert in the other. So what we hope in is, you know, Khan Academy, we can at least raise the floor for those students. We can Give them access to a a rigorous world-class physics curriculum, rigorous world-class American history curriculum, uh, civics curriculum, uh, so that when they go to college, they're more likely to be able to engage. You know, one thing I've been talking lately. There's just been a lot of conversation about inequality and you know ways to address it, and people are talking about things like um, you know universal basic income and tax rates, and I you know those those are all interesting things to think about. My view is. Education is the obvious one, but people have just gotten so cynical about it and and, and they're not thinking kind of big enough about it. And it's a kind of a slow motion emergency because as bad as inequality is today, I just read something this morning that, you know, we're at the same inequality levels that we were 100 years ago, which is kind of the peak for the past 100 years. It's it's going to accelerate because of obvious you know you you have globalization happening uh, so low skill labor goes other places uh, but on top of that you have obviously automation and AI and and all of that so you the, the entire industrial revolution pyramid that we have been living in the bottom two layers are collapsing not just labor but even that information processing which is really kind of these white collar jobs AI is going to do that so as a society more and more productivity is going to happen but is it does it just show up at the top eight percent and then you just have to do massive redistribution and you're leaving everyone else without purpose or uh do we do we try to educate ourselves out of it and, and try to invert the pyramid which is the more the the bolder thing to do but if we don't try i think we're going to have a very um a, a very dystopian world in, in in about 50 years
0: is there a piece of advice that you've gotten that over time has really been valuable for you that you want to share with other people
1: I'll give two that I, I always remember, actually, especially when I'm hitting kind of a tough spot. Uh, one was, it was actually at the commencement address when I graduated from college, the president of MIT at the time, Charles Vest, he's, he's now passed away. He used to tell this really funny story. I won't tell you the whole story, but this college student came up to him later and said, you gave me the best advice ever when I graduated and when I got my diploma and, and President vested, said, well, what did I tell you? He said, keep on moving, keep on moving, you know, <laughs> just to move off the stage. Um, but it is it is this amazing thing. Like, you know what, you, you hit a wall, whatever, just like, just keep, you know, put one foot in front of That's what I've t- t- taken from it. I think that was his message is just like – As long as you just keep taking those steps, it goes even back to Khan Academy. Like, you know, we now I've probably made like thousands of videos now and people think like, wow, how did that happen? It was, you know, it's every day just making a couple, making two, three. um, And it just adds. And and it it, it started, you know, if, if back in 2006, imagining trying to create something, you know, right now, I think last month, you know, we're reaching close to 20 million learners. That would have seemed uh, delusional uh, in in 2006, but it's just one step in front of another. You hit a wall, and many walls were hit, uh, but you just say, No, I'm going to keep chugging at this. The other thing, uh, this actually came from my first boss. My first job was at Oracle. Thomas uh, Curian was was my boss, and he's now done amazing things with his career. But I remember at times I got kind of cynical sometimes about, you know, sometimes being at a big company, and I'm like, Oh, there's sometimes some politics, and, you know, this is happening slower than it should. And he's like, Look, Sal. Of course. And that's life and you're, you know, you're you're 22 years old and you're going to learn more about life, but like just at every moment think about what's the most positive thing that you can do. And um, I've just taken that as as you know, don't get cynical. It's very easy to get cynical, but at any moment life happens. Keep moving and what's the most positive thing that you can do at that moment.
0: So that's a good segue to my telling you keep moving, Sal <laughs> Thanks thanks <laughs> thanks for all. Thanks for all the work you've done and thanks for spending time with us. Really really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Sal Khan. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to at Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper, and the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Stay Tuned is produced in association with Stitcher. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Clio is a secure cloud-based legal software that will help take your law firm to the next level. Clio automates the tedious tasks like generating bills, maintaining endless documents, and keeping cases organized, allowing you to focus on the things that really matter. Go to clio.com slash preet to start your free trial, no credit card required, and get a special offer. That's clio.com slash preet. Hi, I'm Ben.